Welcome back to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Today we're talking about slavery. Enslavement, reducing a human being to be the property of another, is one of the worst things people do to each other. We probably think of it as something belonging to the past, with spectacular historical examples like the bondage of the Israelites in Egypt or the slave economy of the antebellum southern states of America. Yet this year, when the director Steve McQueen accepted an Oscar for his film Twelve Years a Slave, he dedicated it to the 21 million people who still suffer slavery today. So how should we define slavery, and where does it exist around us today? There is something underground, oppressed and silent about the condition of slavery. How can we possibly understand what it's like to be a slave? George Orwell realised that of the many million slaves who have existed in history, he knew the names of only three. What are the legal, the economic, the psychological implications of slavery? What does it do to the slave and what does it do to the slave owner? Helping me to understand slavery in today's conversation are Kendall Johnson, an old friend of this program, a scholar of American literature and history, and head of the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Hong Kong University, and Duncan Jepson, a Hong Kong lawyer, filmmaker, journalist and novelist, and the founder and director of Liberty Asia, whose slogan is Freedom from Slavery. Um, Duncan, I would like to start with you and ask you about slavery in the ancient world. What are the, some of the earliest historical examples we have of slavery? Well, I think it goes right back to when people started to form collectives. And uh, I think, you know, oft, often recognized the, the earliest civilization of Sumeria. And, um, you know, the Sumerians had a code for, for slavery, how it would work, what, how slaves were treated, um, the trade of slaves and, and you know, a lot of early records started out with accounting and that was an element of it was how they were accounted for um, and, and the prices of them so it starts at the very beginning and I guess it starts with one person realising that they can control another and gain something from it and then it continues unsurprisingly through ancient Egypt uh, you know, through um, classical uh, antiquity through the Greeks, through the Romans and it never really ceases I, I think what occurs is people forgot about it. It, it. The law caught up with it. It became uh, criminal. And um, uh, but the, the the essence of it um, and the concept of simply exploiting someone for one's own benefit or benefit of others is still remains. And would we suppose that slavery, perhaps, is in its initial forms related to war? You go to war against another people. You'd capture some of their soldiers, and then they become your property. I think that's that was a primary source of um, slaves, but I think you know one of the important parts uh, elements of of slavery that people often draw reference to is the fact that slavery um, you know in ancient uh, ancient times was wasn't racist. So actually, it could be that your own people enslaved you. It could be that through debt, um, you or through marriage, you were forced um, into a slavery situation. So I think there was various sources, uh, and war and conflict was certainly one of them. And obviously, our idea of war now is as of grand scale um, conflict. But wars um, four or five thousand years ago were much smaller affairs, and we're talking about much smaller numbers of people. Yeah. Um, but it 
but it needn't necess- it needn't have been been through war and um you know and, and also there was a much more of a, a dynamic between those people who were made slaves and then found freedom and maybe became slaves again and slaves owning slaves um so it, it was it was slaves much more complex. Slaves? Well, there were situations where a slave could actually, particularly in in, um, in the, the Roman structure, where a slave could have another slave doing their job. I mean, you you'd have the system where someone would would have a, a big force to do a particular job, and then could force somebody else to do that job. And there were sort of chains of slaves. So it, it was much. It, there was an actual structure to it, and you know the Romans had, I think, a particular holiday, which I can't remember the name of, um, where the slave owners would become slaves and treat the slaves to um, to a meal and there would be a sort of fancy dress and no, no doubt that was a peculiar evening um, but but it shows you that the dynamic was very different and you know the, the idea that slaves would get married and who owned them and you know, it was much more complex but it, it, in its in that it was more structured Whereas what, you're t- what we're talking about now is something much more violent, um, mm. which is purely about control and exploitation. There are no, there are no rules to it as such. Mm. And we would also be, no doubt, talking about the possibility of someone not being taken into slavery but being born into slavery. Yes, right? exactly. And I think um, you know, that... Um, I, mean, I guess that's, that, um, that's perhaps one of the things that is less prevalent now. Um, but... Very much so, it seems, through the history of um, uh, of slavery activities, that, that people could be born into it, into a family of people who were were enslaved. Um, but then, you know, again, we go back to the sort of structure of of being able to escape, um, of there being and it, of there being being the possibility of buying oneself out, um, or in some cases, as I said, getting somebody else to do the work that you were doing. So, yeah, there was that, there was that ele- that element of it. Um, uh, Kendall, I defined slavery at the beginning as being treated as someone else's property. Mm. Um, that's a rather rudimentary definition. Can we firm up that definition a bit and then maybe talk about the way that the meaning of slavery changes historically? Sure. Well, property is a good reference point for changing the definition. Um, if you go to the 18th century and you think about the way that John Locke is talking about the definition of civil government, it's based in contract. And he thinks slavery is a perpetual state of war. And what modern-day slavery, let's say modern starting with the Portuguese in the 16th century, going down the coast of Africa, and um, kidnapping or buying and selling people, uh, you have a commodification that lines up with uh, rationales of religion, of non-Christian people being, you know, you can enslave them, the other, um, you can enslave people that are from Africa at this point. Um, and from that Portuguese beginning, it grows into a world economy that's very lucrative, that crosses the Atlantic and, and develops into this language of property so that you're, as a slave, a, a, a chattel. You're a transferable piece of property like cattle. And people are moving you, buying you, selling you as a labor force. They're speculating on you, taking insurance out on you, as movable property. Um, and religion that begins the excuse of it also at the end helps tear down the logic that sustains slavery. So there's some ironies of, of faith at work here too. So would what we call the, slave, the Atlantic slave trade, in effect, which is a great focus for slavery, this begins with the Portuguese in well, Africa? Um, 
it begins with them going to Africa and taking slaves, but the ac actual transatlantic aspect of it develops, um, and that's Span Spain and England. And we think about that middle passage, mm -hmm. and it's actually not just moving across the Atlantic. It's actually a process that begins in Africa as people are moved um, across different parts, regions of Africa, sold, put in ships, and then taken to the Caribbean, Barbados, Haiti, um, and then sold throughout the Americas, uh, South America, Central America, and North America, what would become the United States. So this is for a particular kind of... We're not talking about domestic slavery. We're talking about a plantation economy where a large labor force is, is required that, that you don't have to pay for if they're slaves. That's right. So there's, you know, if you read, you know, slave narratives um, about the United States, there's always this sort of division of labor, which is uh, very pernicious and insidious about what type of work you do as an enslaved person, whether you're a field hand and suffer the indignity of uh, the environment uh, and or whether you're invited into the house to serve carefully, closely with, with the family. And we see this in popular movies today about slavery, mm -hmm. the slave narratives, and accounts um, that historical accounts as well. I think that that's interesting because the thing that I think changes at some point is that view of what it is to be included and to be human. And... Um, you know, I read this, uh, Gary Wills wrote a book, which is Lincoln at Gettysburg, which is this you know, great discussion about what it is, 128 words, I think, the, the address. But this idea that in that address, Lincoln moves the idea of we and the concept of men to include everybody and not just, I suppose ostensibly at the time, uh, largely um, uh, um, Caucasians. And it, that seems to me fundamental to what slavery became during that that period was it was not just about you know um, exploitation of um, of work for low cost which is you know something that Adam Smith warned against um, but he but it's about something that is a existential issue about how beings are treating each other and you know that when, when coming from north of England um, part of the slave triangle that trade triangle we were on one end of it an apex of it which was you know I ended up living in near Bradford, which was obviously a lot of textile mills there, and there's Manchester close by, and then there's Liverpool. And um, the ships would set off from Liverpool empty. They would go to uh, the West Coast in Africa. They would pick up um, individuals, and then they would be in the US, and they'd be back in, in Liverpool with cotton, and so it would go on. And uh, the trade itself was one problem, but it moved from being, well, I guess we were talking about in classical times, which was about there being structure and everyone kind of being treated still as humans, um, treating each other equally but of different social statuses to being something that was you know, no longer human. And that, then it's shifted back, thank God, obviously. Let's focus in on, on this question of the slave as, as other, because the story we seem to be telling is that perhaps in ancient times your slave might, be, might have been from a a nearby tribe or whatever, but would not be considered One different in kind. Things that made it easy whereas with the was African a way of thinking thing. about other human beings as different in kind, right? I, I think you know the idea of making that into some sort of livable sense, experiential sense, must have been brutalizing for all involved. Um, the amount of violence taken to actually run a slave ship. Um, 
the amount of uh, insensitivity you must have had to the trauma of what was occurring around you. And the ports of call where these slave ships would take people that had become commodities were basically brokerage pivot points where mm-hmm. you would basically you know, clean up people, put them on the block and sell them and distribute them to buyers, right? I think that that uh, dehumanizing process is still something that we're, you know, it seems in some ways unfathomable. Of course, we understand it as something historical, um, and we experience the same, different versions of that today. Let's, uh, I want to go on from that, the notion of the slave trade, to think about the slavery in the southern United States and then the Civil War and the whole issue, which is central to American history. Before that, though, let's think for a moment about slave revolts. Mm. We are all familiar with... uh, George Orwell said he knew the names of three slaves. One of them, of course, was Spartacus. (laughs) Spartacus, who famously led a, for a time, successful slave revolt in the first century B.C. And there are other examples of this. Many, many. I think that's one of the stereotypes that, um, well, we should think very very carefully about is that there weren't revolts. There were hundreds of revolts happening through the centuries. Um, Most of the literature that comes out about slavery is is at its heart revolutionary. Mm -hmm. When W.E.B. Du Bois says that uh, the most significant drama in the last thousand years of human history is slavery, he has at the the heart of that sensibility survivance through and revolt against the authorities that enslave. So Haiti um, is one of those moments. This is the Toussaint Louverture. Mm-hmm. That's right. Slave revolt. That's right. So you've got the French Revolution. Yeah. In some ways, the more profound revolution is in Haiti. Um, and it's something that the United States is looking at. Um, the southern states are frightened mightily by the example of bloody revolution, successful revolution. Um, in the United States, um, Denmark, Denmark Vesey in the 1820s, Nat Turner um, in the 1830s, these are southern states where slaves are revolting. Um, the Amistad um, slave revolt in 1839. Um, in, in the Civil War, too, you can't imagine the Civil War in the United States without thinking about African Americans enslaved people as part of the impetus to that uh, nation destroying violence. Yeah. And these early 19th century slave revolts that, that you list there are being in part inspired by ideas coming out of Enlightenment and then out of the French Revolution itself. Yes. Notions of the of human rights, of well, individual, you know, man is born free. I think before, the, before you've got the French Revolution, you've got the Declaration of Independence. Okay. It's a document by Thomas that. Jefferson that uh, legitimates violence um, to take down a tyrant as the King of England's being defined. Mm-hmm. And you know, Thomas Jefferson is one of those figures that's deeply contradictory and ambivalent in his view towards slavery. In the first draft of the Declaration, he calls it, you know, he basically accuses the king of becoming a tyrant by pushing slaves on the colonies. When you get to the Constitution, uh, this is not by Jefferson, but by Madison, you've got what Duncan was referring to earlier, which is the political definition of citizenship and a legitimization of slavery, a justification of slavery. Within the Constitution. 
although the word isn't used, right? So it's mentioned three yeah. times in, in how you basically apportion representation in a representative government. You count the enslaved three-fifths of a person. Um, another part of the Constitution forbids Congress from regulating the migration or importation of any persons until 1808, uh, wherein in 1808 is when slave trade into the United States is actually outlawed. And the third place is in Article 4, where the states, in order to sign on to the Constitution, all agree to return fugitives that are moving through their states. That means if you're a northern state, you have an obligation constitutionally to return fugitive slaves southward. And then the, the Supreme Court decision in 1857, the Dred Scott decision, mm -hmm. which basically says black people in the United States are not citizens. Right? And this is the profound uh, relegation of black people um, from citizenship in the United States, which needed a civil war to rectify. I mean, I think it, I mean, this is a lawyer, I suppose. For me, what's interesting is if you go back further and you really look at the idea of when law became applicable to all in the land and all in the land felt that it was applicable and enforceable against them. And that's when at some point, you know, whether it was some post Magna Carta type point at which people in a what became a nation state said, okay, there are these laws and they apply to all of us and it must have taken some while before that pervaded. But but then it became a view, well I've there are these laws and I do have rights and you know how do they get enforced, which was obviously another issue for, you know, the um nascent states at the time in pre medieval period I would suspect. And that's when I think that the issue starts to become more interesting because then you get to a point where slavery is legal and there is that issue, you know, which I forget the name of the ship that goes down and tries to make an insurance claim. The Zong. The Zong, that's it. The Zong goes down and makes an insurance claim and then there are some, there are some individuals in Britain that say, wait a second, you can't be making this insurance claim. I mean, every insurance company to begin with, obviously. Um, as, um, saying, well, you know, you can't, you can't claim back on these individuals, which actually you, you, you killed yourself by throwing some of them overboard and, and by having such, such conditions that they died anyway. And that sort of caught people's interest and imagination. But it was the idea that, that people attracted rights and had been doing for several hundred years at that point that people then thought of themselves as, as there being a law and, and that argument of it being legal versus being you know, unlawful and criminal and so forth. And that seemed also part of this, the... You know, man's uh, the societal evolution of, of where rights come from. So we have in we're thinking about um, the United States in the first part of the nineteenth century. We we think of the northern states as having no slavery. That's correct. Um, slavery has been abolished, outlawed in the northern states, whereas in the southern states, a different kind of economy. They're hanging on to their slaves. But nationally, it's still a slave society. Well, yeah, I think the United States is coming together. It's moving westward. There's wars being fought against Mexico, mm -hmm. against Native American peoples. And the extension westward of the nation brings up the question is, what kind of nation will the United States be into the future? Will the new territories be admitted as slave or free? And that really upsets the compromises that have sustained the nation. Um, at the, at the time of the Civil War in 1861, um, there's about 4 million enslaved people in the South uh, of a population of about 31 million people. 
Now, that's a microcosm of the Americas. There's millions and millions of more slaves, enslaved people outside of the United States, which really gets to the profound nature of what slavery meant in this period. Before we move on from this, say a little bit about the role of, of, of Christianity in the abolition movement. Yes. Well, if you, if you read a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, or you think about William Lloyd Garrison, um, an abolitionist who starts The Liberator, or read Frederick Douglass's Narrative of the Life, all of them are wrestling with the moral imperative to end slavery and trying to justify violence to do so. Some people don't think violence is a tool that fits within a belief of within Christianity. Other people do believe, like John Brown, who tries to start a slave revolt and is executed by the United States government. So with, on the other side, Christianity is also being used by Southern slaveholders, as you see in the movie 12 Years a Slave, to justify, um, you know, to read the Bible in ways that rationalize this patriarchy of white southern authority uh, so you know, Christianity is a fascinating point of faith that both sides are trying to mobilize and justifying what they do is slavery now against the law everywhere yeah I think the last was Mauritania made it unlawful in 2007 so I think yeah I mean everyone's uh, Palermo Protocol and a number of other, um, you know, incredibly influential documents have been uh, been promulgated, which pushed everybody towards those countries towards adopting that position. Um, but I think that's different. We live in a time of, you know, incredible, you know, promulgation of legislation and regulation every day of the week. So the real issue is: is it going to be enforced, and can it be enforced? Um, and um, that actually, I think, is is the challenge we face today. Moving from lawful to unlawful was, you know, it's taken obviously the American Revolution and, and, and litigation and huge amounts of um, and, and decision making, uh, judicial decision making. But once that's been done, once a statement has been made, it is unlawful. Then actually, the problem comes: is, is it going to be, is it going to be enforced? Is there a cultural change that actually stops people from thinking, well, I'm still going to break the law and continue to do it? And, um, and that, I think, is the situation that we've reached now. And we also changed the name of it to trafficking persons for a while. And mm. slavery has been um, tentatively embraced again as as um, a better description of what occurs. Um, and and a lot of, there's a lot of sensitivity about the language, um, as there is you know, in so many, so many of these um, issues. And... Um, I think there is a movement back to being slightly more realistic about it, that even though it's been, it's now a criminal activity, that it's got many different stages to it, it it's more prevalent than it ever was to many people. I, I mentioned the film director, Steve McQueen, saying 21 million slaves in the world today. Is is that a realistic figure? Does anyone know? Well, I mean, I might point out that you can speak to researchers who look at the Indian brick kilns and will tell you that they think that there's three or four million uh, children that run those kilns. So if, if we're to believe the number of 21 million, but there are somehow four, three or four million kids um, running the kilns, and these numbers are broad, well, 25% are in just one industry and one, so it seems a bit unlikely somehow. So I think 21 million is the number that um, most people can agree upon as, um, as and a sort of a... a 
a sensible number in a way for such a thing. Um, you know, last year, um, Global Slavery Index printed a number that was 28 million. Um, so, you know, went up in the course of a year by 7 million. I, I think the reality is it's a metaphor for the fact that it is out of control. Nobody really knows. And it's unacceptable. The counter argument is, well, six, seven billion people on the planet. What are we worried about with um, 28, 30, 100, 200 million? I mean, it's still a small number compared to the total population. Who are these people? Are they mostly men, women, children? It's, um, so the statistics generally believe to break down into 70% um, men, um, 20, 30%, 20, 30% um, uh, children and um, women. Um, same sorts of numbers, 70, 75% in labor, um, um, slavery, and the remaining uh, percentage in, in sex trafficking. Um, so, but the bulk of the focus at the moment is, and has been for a while, is on, is on the sex trafficking side. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, um, Individuals who um, are trafficked and then exploited are often, you know, often either are released back or escape back into, you know, make their way back into society of sorts and then make their way back home. Um, and then there are a lot of, uh, there are, in absolute terms, a lot of gruesome cases um, where that isn't, where that doesn't happen. When we think about the history of slavery, we're thinking about the history of a crime, but also the history of some very heroic actions on the parts of the slaves themselves and, and the people who cared about them to combat slavery. Um, is there much that can be learned from the way that slavery was combated in in the past? I think so. I think that you know, the, the, you know, Toussaint Louverture is a hero. I mean, my, to us today, I think, for starting the Haitian Revolution. He didn't start it, but he becomes a sort of face to that that movement. I mean, if you actually thought about all of the people revolting, that that's the face the face is, right? Mm. Um, but beyond the, the historical fact of revolt, we're still figuring out what it means in terms of art, literature, human expression. And that's why reading slave narratives, reading novels depicting slavery are so important today. That's why we have 12 Years a Slave. Mm. And when you go back to that, that act of risking your life in in the case of Frederick Douglass to write about your escape from slavery knowing that if you're identified you could be pulled back into a servitude into enslavement and punished mightily for it and have no rights I think that's when you're defined as not a citizen um, when it's against the law to teach you to read as an enslaved person um, when you're de when the definition of a slave is your mother's a slave therefore you are this opens up uh, such a capacious sense of tragedy to a, um, a national ideal um, and we're still wrestling with that today for me I have to start with the premise that that it's an industry and it's it's obviously it's criminal the individuals who are um, targeted and exploited the victims are um, obviously prior to being victims they're, they're citizens there are so many aspects to it. I mean, there aren't enough, for instance, inv in NGOs investigating it. There are probably a handful. Um, there are hell of, there are a lot more um, shelters for victims, um, but um, it's very unbalanced. We've used up our time. Many thanks to both my guests today, Duncan Jepson and Kendall Johnson. Thank you for listening.